Author Friends. I'm your host, Kendra Winchester, and this is Read Appalachia, a podcast celebrating Appalachian literature and writing. And this is episode nine, which is the first episode in our Poetry Quarter mini-sodes. So I am so excited today to be joined by Emma Galloway-Stevens, who is a poet who's also from the upstate. So welcome, Emma. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am... I'm just so excited for this series. I feel like poetry is something I wish more people just enjoyed. I feel like there's a lot of, um, like maybe sometimes people think they're not smart enough to read poetry. Have you found that when you're you're teaching poetry or talking about poetry with, I don't know, civilians? Oh, for <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so I teach creative writing and general English classes. Some of the most heart-wrenching feedback that I've gotten in my course evaluations, which of course every professor loves. (laughs) But the most heart-wrenching comment I ever got was, I don't understand why the poetry unit is necessary. Something to that tune. And, um, but one of my favorite questions, on the flip side of that coin, one of my favorite questions I've ever gotten in class was, do people still write poetry? (laughs) Which... It was asked in pure, curious sincerity, and uh, I was happy to tell this student, yes, absolutely, people are still writing poetry. But I remember being that student and thinking, are people still writing poems? It is a bit mystifying, poetry. It always has been. But the way that public life works now and how entertainment works now Poetry is, in a way, not a dying language, but I think a kind of lost one. The people who really love it, love it and seek it out. And because it's not necessarily the main way we tell stories anymore, because it used to be, it used to be the main way that we told stories. That's why we have the Odyssey. That's why we have this big, long, epic poems, because that was the easiest way to tell stories was stuff that followed form and rhyme and meter. But that's not how we tell stories anymore which I don't think is a problem, but it does mean that poetry is sort of faded out of the public sphere. And it feels like this esoteric, magical language to people who are unfamiliar with it. So I was thinking about about this very idea after I was editing Bernard Clay's uh, interview for the poetry episode, which of course will be linked in the show notes. And he was talking about, he finds it interesting how poetry, as it continues to survive, is transforming and, and creating different kinds of poetry. Is that something that you've seen as well when you're working with poetry? Yeah, I listened to that episode and nodded along very vigorously when he got to that point <laughs> because uh, it does continue to evolve in the same way that storytelling evolves with the introduction of new technology. And poetry is kind of, I always see poetry as sort of this amorphous smoke monster living, thinking entity that sort of inhales when we exhale. It's symbiotic with us. And as the human collective kind of comes up with new ways of expressing itself, poetry adapts, which I think um, whenever we're going through periods of collective difficulty, like say a gigantic pandemic or other global big shifts, You see a shift in how poetry sounds because poems react and poets react to what's going on around them 
condensing that into language. Every time something big happens, we figure out a new way to make poems happen. I, I know in uh, in the other episode that you're referencing, you talked about uh, it's like social media poetry. Talked about um, I don't know if it came out, but blackout poetry I know is a thing now that wasn't super popular even maybe a couple of years ago. Um, the idea of taking extant work and then eliminating parts of it to reveal a sub-narrative or a subliminal narrative or a new narrative. Because in this moment right now, it feels like a lot of us are looking and closely examining established narratives and interrogating them pretty closely. That's led to some evolutions in how poems sound and look. So yeah, I think there's a lot of shifts going on in form, uh, and people really like form, but they love play with it even more, which means that every time you look at a new poem, you could be looking at something that's never been seen before. I, I love to hear how poetry is continuing on and, and doing different things. So, well, to, that's, I guess, why this why this series exists. <laughs> So I guess we yes. should, I should explain how the series works since this is new for everyone. And thank you again for being the first one, um, the brave first step, as it were. <laughs> so One small step for man. <laughs> something like that. Something, something, something. So uh, basically what this is, is a little mini poetry reading. So like we jumped in like just head first into our conversation. We'll talk about poetry and ideas around poetry. And then the poet will then read some of their work. And that's, that's the mini-sode. And I think that it is a nice short way that uh, people can access poetry in, in a different way. And honestly, I love poetry the best when it's read out loud. So um, this is also just selfishly for me as well. So <laughs> very excited for it. So... What are you planning on reading today, Emma? I am planning on reading uh, a few poems, time permitting, uh, from my as-of-yet-unpublished collection. Unpublished? Unpublished. Um, not, for, not for lack of trying, but um, currently it, it has no home. If only people would just like reach out to you and say, here, publish it. I think that would be fabulous. <laughs> yeah, it would be it would be so magical if I could Louisa May Alcott my way. I have faith. Um, if I could Anne Shirley my way into the poetry ocean. <laughs> but um, right now it's uh, it's home is in my little submission files in my um, in my desktop and my on my hard drive. Yeah, I've uh, right now the working title is Devil Go Down. It's a, I keep calling it a horror novella in verse. It, it's a story in three parts composed of individual poems. So it is a collection in the traditional sense, but also there's an underlying narrative. Uh, and the story itself is not set in Appalachia, which I know may be breaking form for our audience. Um, but it's set in South Georgia, which is where my dad is from. And there's a haunted house and a haunted carnival and all kinds of other fun imagery that pops up. Um, but I'm going to start with My Father and the Long Black Train. My father watches trains. He stands as close to the tracks as he can, 
to feel the roar of iron on iron, to ride the galloping clatter of its viscous slicing feet. Not strange for a man who stepped outside to face any storm that rolled over our split-level brick house in the foothills, the man who walked face first into the howling while I screamed for him, calling him out of the storm, away from the streaks of bright evil splitting the black sky. I wanted him to step away from the railroad, too. I dreaded the clanging of the rail guards, my stomach sinking with those long, striped arms, knowing he'd get out of the car, knowing he'd stand a yard from the rushing iron angel, hands on his hips like death didn't impress him much. Ooh, I do got like I literally got chills. Like listening, I was like, "This is cre- this is like the best kind of creepy possible." I I love <laughs> creepy stuff, man, and I love writing creepy stuff. I went into my MFA wanting to learn how to write things that frighten people. I feel like that's a solid goal. Yeah, yeah, and I I think I succeeded. I've been told that my poems freak people out a little bit, but in in a good way usually. Again, lots of most of my poems are haunted. They've got little ghosts in them. All right, here's another one. Psalm 1. My father planted me by the riverside. I still remember sand between my toes and the fluorescent borrowed inner tube that he held steady on the anxious water. Hold tight to me. I will not let you go where I can't reach you. I remember leaning on his chest as we rode the green back of the river. I was afraid of snakes that swam invisible, sand among sand. Father would not let me swim alone where the copperheads kept silent fellowship. Instead, he floated me in that orange halo along the river's back, light as leaves that fall in fall from summer-planted trees. My father raised a girl with unskinned knees. That's it. I love the last image. It makes you just sit and think about layers of meaning throughout the, throughout the poem. And it's uh, also a direct memory that I have of summers with my dad, uh, my very protective father, uh, taking me tubing down a river in Georgia somewhere. I can't remember where. North Georgia, I think, actually, is where that took place. And it's also a sonnet. That was a sonnet as well. We love a sonnet. I love them. I write so many of them, and I try not to write sonnets, and then I'm writing along, and then I discover, oh no, it's another sonnet. But I don't like following the rules all the way, either. Occasionally, I'll write something that follows all the rules, all the iambic pentameter, all of the perfect rhyme scheme. But I... I don't like following the rules explicitly. I like borrowing some of the rules as I want them uh, for the purposes of the poem. And that one just really wanted to be 14 lines and a couplet at the end. I like that. You're kind of making your own path, as it were. I do. I. Uh, it's not original to me, the idea of taking a sonnet and messing with it. But um, a lot of the work that inspired me when I was studying how to write poems were kind of messed up little sonnets. All right. Uh, as all good horror stories need, uh, mine has a, a villain as well. Um, and this poem introduces this 
this entity that lives in the woods. My uncle warns me about the not deer. The not deer dwells in the deep of the woods. It walks the spine of the railroad. You've never seen it. It has seen you walking the well-marked trails. Enter the woods and you are in the kingdom of the not deer. His crown, a wheel of antlers, his eyes, two lanterns, his teeth as long as white as a midwinter night. Walk in the realm of the not deer, and if you wait, you'll hear the quiet of his coming. No bird sings for him, no cicada clatters, and the spiders cease their weaving. The not deer, king of shadows, watches. He is the branches of the hemlock tree. He is the tangle of the kudzu vine. He is the firefly light beyond your campfire's reach. That is also delightfully terrifying. I I feel like when you set up the imagery in the first part of the poem, you're just like, oh, I can see this. Do you find that the images in your poems come first or do they just develop as you work through the language? Uh, I I think I'm very much a image-first kind of poet. My process is uh, a little scattershot. Uh, I have... I'm neurodivergent as well, which I think a lot of poets are because we see the world a little differently and our way of processing and sometimes follow follow its own path. Um, part of the reason I became a poet is because I have the attention span for a poem, right? A whole story is a little overwhelming, but I could do a poem. So I'll usually start with an image, but those images are always attached to words. I will be haunted by a phrase or a couplet or a series of lines or just two rhyming words that I love, I'll write them down and they will be homeless for a very long time. Until one day after mulling over these phrases for long enough, I'm able to sit down and write the poem that holds them. And so usually what that ends up looking like is the rest of the poem serves those images. Sometimes that means repeating those images or finding sounds that help enhance the images, but definitely I'm a very image first poet. In fact, I have a poem that followed that process uh, where I had the ending couplet and I didn't have the rest of the poem uh, for a while. And then, and then I was able to, to write the end. It's another sonnet, sort of. The Last Summer of the Kumquat Tree. A tree behind the house bore fruit for one summer, only one. A cluster of kumquats grew like a tumor in the heart. The branches couldn't bear more than one summer's worth of fruit, each one as orange as the last sunrise on the final day I held my brother's baby boy the size of a magnolia blossom. Some gravestones are no taller than the flowers blooming by the railroad tracks. One of them is his. Who knew the wheel could turn so quickly? One summer of hailstones and bitter rain, and he is home, though it's home unlike any home I have ever seen. No coffin should be built that small. No coffin should be built at all. Thank you for coming on the show and reading your uh, yet unpublished poetry collection. Um, What's the title of it again? 
Well, it's had about 15 different titles, <laughs> but right now uh, it's called Devil Go Down. I feel like it tells you everything that you need to know in that. Maybe it's because I'm the millennial generation that had that like infomercial uh, of the storytelling songs or something, but uh, I I really like it. But I, I, we shared a writing teacher who always told all of his students that writers really suck at titles, paraphrase. So yes, there. Yes. I think poets might get That's an true. exception at some point, but Again, I digress. Half of my dra- dress right now are just untitled thing because I <laughs> I can't name my children. I can't. It's, I can't do it. Someone else difficult. is going to do it for me <laughs> to outsource that. It's like a like a poetry doula or something. I know. It's <laughs> a poetry doula. That's a whole other can of worms. Anyway, to, other day. to to <laughs> avoid to avoid the can of worms, um, where can uh, where can people find you and your poetry and all of the things and of course everything you mentioned? I'll link in the show notes. All right, um, I have a Substack. The URL is GallowayStevens.substack.com. Uh, the title is called The Trochaic Dispatch. So I, when I feel like writing an essay, that's where those go. So that's my, that's my online presence that we'll include today. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. And I hope you, hope you get a lot of new fans and that, you know, a lot more green lights on Submittable. Thank you so much for having me. This has been very fun. Okay, friends, that is our show. A heartfelt thank you to Emma Galloway-Stevens for coming and reading some of her poetry today. You can find all of her social media links and info, etc. in the show notes. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, you can find a myriad ways to support Read Appalachia on readappalachia.com. And you can find us across social media at Read Appalachia. You can find me across social media at KD as in Dylan Winchester. And make sure you join us next time for our main themed episode for July. And that is for Disability Pride Month. Until then, happy reading.